Well, good morning. Man, that is good music this morning. Amen. That is good worship. I was like going, keep singing, keep singing. That is like great. After you hear the message, you may go, yep, should have kept singing. And, uh, and hopefully that's not the case. Today we're going to end up our series of sermons entitled uh, Rethink Church. Let me kind of get this kind of, whoop, kind of situated so uh, everybody can see it. And we're talking about living a balanced life in Christ. The key kind of text comes from verse 1 of chapter 4 where it says, let's live a life worthy. And the idea is that the theology that is poured into you, and I know a lot of people don't like the word theology. And you're going to hear theology a lot. It's not a word to be afraid of. Theos just means God. Ology, the study of. Theology, just the study of God. It's not a word to run from. It's a thing to run to. And so you're going to hear a lot the word theology used, but it's always in a positive light and in an encouraging light. And so we're wrapping up this series of messages on Rethink Church because I think there needs to be some things that we need to be reminded of that needs to be just part of the DNA of our church. It's just kind of like who we are, what we do, how we believe, where we stand, and that kind of thing. All right? So rethink church. And uh, by the way, you will see slides up on the screen. I got this to Kyle woefully late. It's not his fault. It is my fault. And uh, so we're just going to run with it, and he'll catch up because he does an awesome job back there. First of all, we talked about we over me. We talked about humility and self uh, and, and not self-aggrandizement, but, but serving one another and loving one another and not asserting our own rights or prerogatives, but, but being one and understanding that we're part of a community and it's not about control, it's about unity. Matter of fact, the entire theme of Ephesians 4 is about purity and unity. And so... We talked about we over me. Then we talked about how saved people serve people. And I'm telling you, if you're not serving, you have wrong theology. Your actions will always follow your theology. And if you're not serving, I don't care if this hurts, you have wrong theology. You have misunderstood the claims of the gospel. The word gospel just means good news of Jesus Christ. You misunderstood what Jesus came to this earth floor. Last week we talked about how an empty chair is a serious matter, and it truly is, because Jesus Christ died on the cross, and this week you'll have wonderful opportunity, no weeks, midweek service on Wednesday, but Good Friday service at 7, and then the egg hunt Saturday morning. Clayton did an incredible job last year, and he's just going to blow it out the, uh, over the top this year, and then Easter Sunday uh, coming up, invite somebody to come to church. An empty chair is a serious matter. And today I can sum up today's message in three words. Here it is. Write it down. Matter of fact, you got your little note page there and, and write it down. Three words, three simple points, a lot of scripture from Ephesians 4. Here it is. Growing people change. Growing people change. Say that with me. Growing people change. Now, how many of you, I mean, just by your nature, just by who you are, just maybe by your upbringing, maybe because you're married to somebody who doesn't like change, how many of you would just be honest and say, you know, I'm just not somebody that really likes a lot of change. Can we just see who you are? Yeah? Yeah, got a few. Got a, a matter of fact, some of you are looking around going, well, I don't know, I'll change my opinion if nobody else raises their hand, you know? A lot of us don't like change. 
uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not good at technology, and so when I figure it out, by the time I figure it out, they change it, and that just aggravates me to death. But I can still, but I, I still change with it. Growing people change, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Today, churches all over the world are going to celebrate Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' return to Jerusalem. The crowds, the crowds lined the streets and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It, it really is the continuation of that imagery we talked about last year or last week when a king goes off the war and he comes back victorious. The musicians play and, and the, the generals down to the privates follow in line and then the king of the defeated army and, and the defeated city is bound and, and carried into the city and his soldiers behind him and then the spoils of the city and as the king would enter the city they would lay palm branches it was a sign of victory it was a sign of conquest it was a sign of honor and devotion and love and so as they would lay their palm branches down as Jesus came in they said Hosanna Hosanna this is the Messiah this is the one who's come in the name of the Lord and he came in signifying uh, to celebrate the Passover to die on the cross on Good Friday to rise again on Easter Sunday and we call this entire week starting with Palm Sunday to his resurrection the Passion Week and following Jesus into Jerusalem were his men they were his posse they, they, they were his kind of closest companions or some of his closest companions on it we call them the 12 disciples disciples just means learner or follower they were just Christ followers and they followed him into Jerusalem and I don't and his friends weren't the same friends that they were three and a half years before when he met them they had grown they had changed in their understanding. Well, they still had some rough edges, no doubt, but they, they, were, they were people in process. And they were in the process of changing because their faith was growing. Andrew had heard Jesus teach. He thought it through, told his older brother about him. He followed him, and that brother's name was Peter. Now, Peter was impetuous. He spoke without thinking. He, uh, he reacted more out of emotion than he did understanding, yet his understanding of Jesus changed as the years went by. So much so, and it changed to such a degree that once he walked on water with Jesus, became, and then he became one of the most grounded and direct preachers of the early church. He grew in his understanding, growing people change. Peter had a good friend. His name was John. Matter of fact, they became traveling kind of companions of sorts. And John and his brother, James, would argue about who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. In this new world order that Jesus talked about. And they, they wanted that place of honor, that place of recognition, that place of prestige. And James and John were known as the sons of thunder, man. They must have had some knockout, dragout fights, if you get the name. Sounds like a tag team wrestling match for big time wrestling, doesn't it? You know, here they are, the sons of thunder. I mean, just knock down, drag out, beat the mess out of each other. And, and yet... It was John who would write five books in the Bible. It was John who would write the Gospel of John and the book of the Revelation. 
John had a brother, his name was James. He became the, one of the followers of Jesus Christ. I'm just simply telling you, you could go through the list. There was Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was a, was a militia type of guy. I mean, he was ready to fight. And he followed the, the Judas Maccabees kind of, kind of thinking that we're going to take over the Roman Empire by force, that somehow a rebellion would get up out of Jerusalem. And he wanted to be a part of it. He was a fighter by nature. But as he walked with Jesus, he realized that victory would not be through physical contact, conquest, but through spiritual battle. And this man of war became a man of peace because he grew, and growing people change. Please understand that the point here is if you experience Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you watch Jesus, if you hear Jesus through his words that are given to us in the Bible you, and grow in your understanding, when you grow, you will change because growing people change. Now the tragedy is that there are some of you here today, you are no older spiritually than the day that you got saved. Matter of fact, there are very little changes in some of your life except that you inserted into your schedule a Sunday morning event called church. Other than that, you talk like everybody else, dress like everybody else, act like everybody else, do everything like everybody else. Growing people change. The Apostle Paul understood that growing people change. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Everyone can change by living out three put behaviors. Three put, P-U-T, put behaviors. And that will make sense to you as we go through, the, go through the, the scriptures here. All right? One of Paul's point is that growing people change. Look at verses 17 through 19. Paul starts with a strong therefore. If you have a, I think the uh, a certain translation says now then. The NIV says, so I tell you. The King James says, therefore. It's a strong word. In light of what Paul has just said, being one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, how saved people serve people, how it's we over me, how, it's, how an empty chair is a serious matter. Paul is saying, in light of all of that, in light of the theology, the Christology, theology, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he said, in light of all of that, he said, I insist in the name of the Lord, and I'm going to do the paraphrase version as I kind of worked it through in the Greek this week. He's urging us in Jesus' name not to live as Gentiles do. Now, technically, a Gentile is someone who's a non-Jew. So if you are not Jewish, you and I would be Gentiles. However, here it's used metaphorically to refer to anybody who was not a Christ follower. That's Paul's point. If you are a Christ follower, you don't live like people who don't follow Jesus Christ. If you've invited Jesus Christ in your heart and he lives in your heart, then Paul is saying in verse 17, then you don't live like people who don't have Christ living in their heart. And then he gives you six things or eight things how the Gentiles, how the unbelievers, how those live who don't have Christ in their heart. Do you see it? They have futile minds. Futile means thinking with, 
with the lack of content or truth or solid basis. In other words, they do what they do without knowing why they do what they do. There's no thought, no rhyme or reason. They just kind of do it. It's kind of like if it feels good, do it. I really don't know why. It just feels good. And so the futility of their thinking, they have no understanding of why they do what they do. And then it talks about how they're darkened in their understanding. Darkened means incapable of perceiving, not being able to understand. They're alienated from God. They're estranged because they choose to live far away from God. They're callous, meaning that they're past feeling. Listen, it's not talking about rough hands and you put a little lotion on that thing. You know, now they got a lotion for everything, but you got calluses, you put lotion on things. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in your mind and in your heart, you are past feeling. You are insensitive. That when God moves and God speaks and, and God's spirit fills the place, you feel none of that. When God prompts you to be obedient on the job, you sense none of that. Your heart is just calloused over like the dead skin on the palms of your hands. You used to be a gymnast. <laughs> yeah, I did. And I'd have calluses. I mean, man, just thick calluses. I'd take a razor blade and cut that dead skin off because if it got too big, it would... I couldn't, with my little Fred Flintstone fingers, I couldn't hang on to the, I couldn't hang on to the apparatus. And so I'd have to cut the calluses off. It's talking about being so scaled over, you are past feeling. He talks about not only are they, are they calloused and alienated from God, hard-hearted, meaning they... The process of hardening, which gives sharper insight to what happens to them. It's a life of guilt and misery. Sensuality, do you see it right there in the verse? It is extreme immorality. Behavior completely lacking in moral restraint. Now, I'm going to refer to television here just a little bit. Not because I'm anti-television, because I do want to watch the basketball games. But when I... When I have a full slate on my schedule, man, I get, I, you know, I get home, I get a little bit of news, but man, I love watching sports. Amen, honey. I love watching sports, you know. I will sacrifice and watch Fixer Upper, you know, on Tuesday nights with my wife, you know, and then I like the shows that blow things up and kill people. I love those. But other than that, it's not. And so when I was home, man, I got to flip, I got the channel serve a lot. You talk about sensuality. The problem is, for me, it was shocking because I don't do that. For those of you who, who do do that, it's like, that's ah, no big thing. I do it all the time. It's no big thing. It, it calloused over. See, either this world has an effect on you or Scripture has an effect on you. Either worldliness has an effect on you or theology has an effect on you and you choose what affects you. So I'll just tell you what I did because I like a little background noise in the house. I, I admit I am now in the Larry Blackburn got hooked on Hallmark movie club. I mean, those are the cheesiest things, but I tell you, they're, it, you the, the women keep their clothes on, the guys keep their clothes on, there's little to no cussing, and at the end, they have this cheesy little ending. I mean, within five minutes, you know what's going to happen in the movie. 
cheesy. But I chose cheesy because I don't want to get calloused over. I want to live out my theology. I want to live out my relationship with Christ. You mean that affects what you watch on the TV screen? Oh, yeah, it affects what I watch on every screen. The TV screen, the movie screen, the computer screen, and my iPhone screen. And you better guard your screens. Extreme sensuality. You know, last week when I was doing the invite, I was going to tell you how many different organizations send out invitations every day. The porn industry sends out one billion emails every day worldwide. ISIS sends out 90,000 emails specifically, or Twitters, specifically targeted to teenagers and children. That's why empty chairs is a serious matter. We got to give that invite and invite people to come to Jesus. And we can't be calloused over by the sensuality of the world and then, and then greedy for more impu- impurity. It's indecency without control and it has a lust for more. He said, you don't walk that way. You don't live that way. Your theology, your Christology, Jesus Christ came to this world, died on the cross for your sins, rose again, so you don't have to live that way to give you something better. Verse 20 says that uh, this is not the way that you learn Christ. Look at verse 20. That, however, is not what you learned. It's not your understanding. It's not what you've been taught. Now, you've got to understand that these people in Ephesus is who Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to. And Ephesus was a wicked town. It would probably be the Las Vegas of its day. It it, it was in... Ephesus was the temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. This was a lewd, crude, sensual... Matter of fact, all of those eight words that that are used in verse 21 describe the city of Ephesus. And that's all the people of Ephesus knew. If you went to church at the temple of Diana, there was temple prostitution. It was accepted as norm... It was accepted as the way to get closer to their God. Diana was the God of fertility. When we talk about Ephesus, I want you to know this is not some goody-goody Mayberry kind of city that Paul kind of lived there for three years and and with those men and planting churches and helping and encouraging and writing. What Paul was saying is that even though... You live in this decadent city, in this decadent culture, at this decadent time. You haven't learned to live life that way. Don't let culture force you to live it this way. Let your theology help you to determine to live Christ-like in Christ's way. This is the way you live. You learn. Look at verse 21. I think I quoted the wrong verse there but look at verse 21 look at what it tells us it lays great emphasis on theology and when you heard about Christ and you were taught about Christ in accordance to the truth that is Christ 
You experienced it, you heard it, and you did it. It talks about our ethics, it talks about our theology, and it talks about our Christian experience in that one verse. Now, I have heard several people in our church, and I hear it when I go to other churches, and I'll be honest, it it just kind of ticks me off a little bit. Here's, Here's what people have said here, and I hear say at other places, you know, I, I really don't want all that theology stuff. You just give me Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Give me Jesus. Well, what in the world do you think Jesus is? Jesus is walking, breathing theology. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews chapter two, 12 and verse 2. You want to know how God treats people? You look at the way how Jesus treats people. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. You want to know how God feels about humanity? You look at the way Jesus dealt with humanity. You want to know what God thinks about poverty? You look at the way Jesus addressed the poor. You want to know what Jesus thinks about people trapped in a life of prostitution? Watch Jesus in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. I'm simply telling you that Jesus is kind of the ultimate theology book. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He helped you understand those abstract concepts, those kind of, uh, kind of hard-to-understand prophecies. He helps you understand who, G- who God is. We understand who God is from the Old Testament by looking at Jesus in the New Testament because they're one and the same. So it says you not live this way. This is not what you've heard. This is not what you've been taught. This isn't what you know. I believe right actions follow from right theology. So here's the first put I want you to put down on your paper. Here's the put. The first put is behavior. The first put behavior is simply this, four words, five words. Put off your old self. Put off your own self. The word put off means to stop living the way you did formerly. It means to stop, to cease. Paul again is throwing this thing out there. Quit living like Gentiles. Quit living like unbelievers. Quit living like people who don't know Christ. And by the way, the word old means inferior and obsolete. In fact, look at verse 22. It says that we're to put off three things. You're to put off your former manner of life. That's the way you used to live. You're to put off your corrupt thoughts. That's being morally ruined. You're to put off your deceitful desires. This is cool. Deceitful means to cause someone to have misleading or erroneous views concerning truth. Desire means to want something that someone else has. I see so many Christians look from the church window out to the world and go, man, I wish I had what they had. Now, I mean, we could all wish that we could have more money in our bank account, but we all know money's not going to make us happy at the end of the day. And we probably wish we had maybe a little nicer car, but we understand that one day that car is going to clunk out and junk out. Amen? You may wish you had a bigger house until... You have neck surgery and you're trapped in your house for three months and you go, why in the world did I buy a house with so many steps? 
I mean, those things that made us happy 10 years ago don't make us happy today. But yet we, we, we think that the grass is greener out there than in it. No. He, he's saying, listen, you were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupt by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and put on that new self created to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. The point is stop living that way. Matter of fact, there's, there's several things he tells us to kind of put off. If you look at verse 25, he says, put off lying. Simply tell the truth. In verse 26, we're to put off anger. By the way, that verse goes back to Psalm chapter 4 and verse 4. And it seems from Psalm 4, 4 and, and other passages in the scripture, and when Jesus turned over the tables in the temple, it seems that there is some kind of Christian anger that is permissible in scripture. I'm not sure if I've ever experienced Christian anger. Oh, I've been angry, believe you me. And when I get angry and my wife will amen here, it ain't very Christian. But I do think the scriptures allow for us to have a Christian anger where evil abounds. I think one of the things that is sorely lacking, and if this was a soundbite on Channel 7 News, I would be so misunderstood here. But I think what our world is sadly lacking is a true theological understanding of Christian anger. Do you not think human trafficking angers God in heaven? I do. Seldom bothers us. What about prostitution in our city? What about sexting in our, the phones in our children? Child pornography. Don't you think those things are an abomination to a holy God and and that incurs his wrath because of the evilness of it, but yet we remain silent as a church about it? Oh, that's what you're talking about, that Christian anger. Yeah. I'm not talking about you got upset with your friend and now you don't talk and you sit there and look at each other like a bunch of squawking goose. I don't know if goose do that. I just... It was just the image that came to my mind. What about the plight of the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan? The lonely. Didn't James say in James 1.27, true religion is this, it is undefiled when we take care of the widow and the orphans. Well, that's somebody else's job. That's tax dollars now. That's government responsibility. But Christ gave that to us. You're looking at a guy who went and marched in Washington, D.C. for pro-life. I've been on a on a gambling, I don't want to call it a task force, it wasn't quite that formal, but a, a group that worked to keep gambling out of the state of North Carolina. I mean, I've been involved in stuff that tried to keep evil at bay. And I had people go, why bother? Why do you do that? Because I do think the things that God loves, we ought to love. And I do think the things that anger God, we ought to take a stand against it. 
And I do think there is evil that is present in this world that the church, our church and the universal church, has remained quiet about for far too long. That is another message for another time. I'm just simply telling you, there is this thing called Christian anger. I don't necessarily live in that realm because I get upset sometimes. But he says, put off wrath and anger. Put off clamor. Clamor is a word that means, describes people who get overly excited. They raise their voice. They start quarrels. And then they just start shouting and screaming at each other. And it's just like they're a volcano, Mount Vesuvius. And they just erupt. And everybody feels the love and the heat of their anger. Put off slander, that means to speak evil of somebody. Put off malice, that goes a step further to wish and to plot evil against them. So we are put off dishonesty in verse 28, corrupting talk in verse 29. Let me get to the second put. The second put that we need to put behavior is we need to put on the new self. So you take off the old self, you stop living like unbelievers, you change your Actions based on right theology, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians. So you change your attitude, but then you put on the new self. Now, the word put in verse 24 and the word put, I think it is in verse 21, are different words. One means stop. This word in verse 24 means to dress, to clothe yourself, to cover yourself. You see me from the neck up and from the wrist down, everything else covered. I got knobby knees, be glad you don't see those. My wife says I have ugly feet, she even has nicknames for each foot and they're not the same. But you don't see that, covered up. You see gray pants, a striped shirt, a a snazzy dress and a tie because if I didn't wear the tie I would wear this white t-shirt and I'd look like a priest and so I didn't kind of want that look going on so I threw on a tie to cover that up and so you see covered up when you put on that new self you put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ you are covered your sins are covered up in his righteousness. Your sins are covered up in his grace. Your sins are clothed, covered up in his holiness. That's why when we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sins, we put on that new nature. We are covered up in Christ. We put on that new self. And so what are we to put on? Verse 24 says we're to put on that likeness of, of God. Ephesians believers and you have been taught that becoming a Christian involves a radical change and it is radical life change namely and we call that conversion that's the human side of our Christ experience we confess our sins and he gives us his grace we're clothed in righteousness we set off the old stuff we used to do live life in Christ it involves putting off and putting on simply we're a new creation in Jesus Christ and you have to know him not just simply know about him but you have to know him and he has to know you this afternoon I love Duke basketball you guys know I love Duke basketball five something Duke plays I know coach K I know coach K he does not have a clue who I am in this world but I know who he is everybody knows the name LeBron James 
you know about him, plays for Cleveland Cavaliers, went from high school straight to the pros. I mean, you know about him, but I doubt if anyone in here knows him. See, there's a lot of people who know about Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean you've had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. And if you're looking kind of for a progression or an order, man, it, this whole thing starts with a personal experience with Jesus Christ, connecting with God. And then you grow in faith. And then, and then your understanding of theology, your understanding of faith pushes you to live differently, to serve, to live out faith. So we're to put on that new self, that likeness of Christ. It also says we're to put on true righteousness. Righteousness means, means understanding and doing what God requires. I hope you write that down. That is a great definition of righteousness. Righteousness is understanding and doing. It's theology and application. It is doing, understanding and doing what God requires. Now, please listen to me. The church has done a great job of helping children and teenagers and adults understand what we're to do. Do. Talk right, that's a do thing. Serve on a mission trip, that's a do thing. Serve in the church, that's a do thing. But then when somebody questions us about it, when someone questions or challenges our faith, we struggle to give an answer. It's because we taught doing before being. You have to understand who Christ is, who you are in Christ, so that way when you serve, it makes sense to you. I, uh, I coached two soccer teams. Probably will overdo it this year, but I, I, the reason I coach soccer is I understand the theology that an empty chair is a serious matter. And I hang around Christians almost 95% of the time. And it gets me out of my Christian Kirby church bubble. And it puts me in the community with people who don't talk like you, look like you, act like you. And I love it. Not that I don't love you. But I get the privilege of living out my faith in front of people who need to see faith. And these are good people. I love them. Theology, understanding who Jesus is, helps you understand why you do what you do. And if you're not doing anything, then you don't understand who Jesus is because Jesus was always doing something on your behalf. So he says, put on the new self, created in Christ in true righteousness and holiness. That's purity. Let me give you one other put to put on your paper. You're to put off the old self, put on the new self. But then you're just to put up with some things. You're just to put up with some things. Life isn't perfect. Amen? People aren't always perfect. Amen? Your supervisor doesn't always like you. Amen? Sometimes you don't like them. Amen? Please understand. So the Bible's got a verse for that, Ephesians 4.32. Here it is. Be kind and tenderhearted. I like the King James word a little better. The word kind just simply, it, it, it's the word kerstos, which is a derivative from the word Christos, where we get our word Jesus Christos, Christ. So to be Christ-like is to be kind 
can't get any clearer than that, then we're to be tenderhearted. The word means to have great affection for someone. To have great affection. You, you've heard people say they have a tender place in my heart. And you just go, oh, that's so precious. And the reason it's so precious is because they're telling you they have great affection for that someone who has that tender place in their heart. Did you know who Jesus had great affection for? Do you know the kind of people who Jesus had great affection for? If you just read the first seven or eight chapters of the book of John, the Gospel of John, it'll tell you who he had great affection for. In John chapter 1, he had great affection for a, for a cussing fisherman. In John chapter 2, a newly married couple. In John chapter 3, he had great affection for a politician. In John 4, a prostitute who was at a well. In John 5, a sick man. In John 7, the hungry and the poor. In John, or in John 6, the hungry and the poor. In John 7, those who are out to kill you. And some of you struggle with being tenderhearted to a friend who might have hurt your little feelings. Theology, the balance of theology and living it out is what it means to live a life worthy of the calling that you've been called to, Ephesians 4.1. And then we're to be forgiving of one another. We fully forgive completely and fully based on the way God has forgiven us completely and fully on, on behalf of Jesus Christ. Listen, if someone has hurt you offended you intentionally or unintentionally then just live out your theology that you've experienced you've experienced the forgiveness of God full and complete because of God's affection for his son and your relationship to his son Jesus Christ so live out your theology and just forgive the other person you say well you don't know what they've done to me don't care the basis of forgiveness is not what they have done or not done. The basis of forgiveness is the model and the example of Christ. Forgiveness doesn't go back to your experience. It goes back to your theology. It goes back to your understanding of, of the atoning work of Christ. And it was so massive and it was so freeing and it was so graceful that you can now extend that grace to somebody else who has hurt you. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And then he drives it home with one more shot in Ephesians 5.1. He says, be imitators of Jesus Christ. Be imitators of Jesus Christ. Until my voice changed, I could imitate a lot of people. Man, I could do Richard Nixon. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? I could do Flip Wilson so good. I mean, you, you talk about people. I could do Sergeant Schultz on Hogan's Heroes, people that the teenagers have never heard of in their life. But I could do them. Listen, you and I are to imitate Jesus Christ. We're to follow God's example that we have seen that we have heard, that we have understood as we watch, read about the life of Jesus Christ. Now, where are you going to get your theology? How are you going to grow? Let me give you three. You've probably never heard these things before. I'm just kidding. We say them all the time. You connect with God. 
This means having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just knowing about him, but it is knowing him so well that he knows you. It's not this you know about him, but he knows you. And because you and him have met, you now have this personal relationship and you want this ongoing relationship. So you told him, you asked him, you told him you were sorry for the sins that you have done that kept him away from you. And you want him to live in your heart. You want this, this God experience in your life. And that's what worship does. On a weekly basis, when we come in here and it's not filler until, you know, the guy comes out and preaches. That's not it at all. Worship is reconnecting us to God and reminding us to be his imitators. To live out our theology. It's worship. But some of you don't have that relationship with Jesus to worship him. You, you don't know him. You, you know about him, but you don't know him because he doesn't know you. And today I would simply invite you to know him. For those of you who know him, you've given him your heart, then okay, let's take the challenge. Let's get into some theology. Do two things. Start reading the Our Daily Bread. Start reading David Platt or Francis Chan, and I love those guys. I'm, I'm saying read the Bible. If they were here, they would tell you, put my book down, pick his book up. Read the scriptures. You say, well, I don't understand them. Then get involved in a life group. This is all part of growing. Get involved in a life group where you can sit in a circle, not in a row, where people talk to each other and go, hey... What about this? I'm not sure I got it. I'm not sure I understand it. Does anybody know what that means? Man, I'm having trouble right here. Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? That's what life groups are intended to do. It's not to be another Sunday school time. It, it is to go well beyond that, to give you a safe place to talk, to learn, to grow, to think through, to reason through, to study your theology so that your theology then moves you to live like God wants you to live, and then you, you serve. You simply live out your theology in the rest of life. You, you live it out. So that when people look at you, they see a glimpse of Jesus because you are imitating him. So when people see your kindness, they get a glimpse of Jesus because you are imitating him. So when your speech is constructive instead of destructive, people get a glimpse of Jesus because you're imitating him, because you're living out your theology. The question is, is where are you at on one of those three levels? Some of you are here, you, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to connect with him. Others are here and, and, and you come and you sit and you like the singing and, and you like the, the preaching and you go home and... And you don't do anything with it. You give no more thought to it. You don't go back and reread the scripture. You don't talk about it to anybody else. And if you don't talk it through, man, I'm telling you, if you don't give it back to somebody else, you're going to lose it and you're not going to understand it. That's why life groups are so important. And then are you serving? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? I understand for a lot of you.